Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. I guess I should start with a little backstory. I'm a single father to a beautiful three-and-a-half-year-old boy. I love him with all my heart and soul. His mother left him when he was just a baby and refused to let me see him. I had to go through a lengthy and painful court case, but eventually I was granted joint custody. Then, not too long afterwards, his mother left, and it was just us two. I left my job in security to look after him full-time. It wasn't easy as I'm sure any single parent will tell you, but it was extremely rewarding. We don't have uh, any other family, so it's just us, and that's how it's been for the past two years. Now to my predicament. We've both had a bit of a stomach bug for the past few days, and have spent all the time just chilling, watching films on the couch. Yesterday morning when I woke up, my son was in much better spirits. He was bouncing around the room and laughing happily, and seemed, for the most part, to be completely recovered. Next thing I know, he runs up and jumps on my bed, bouncing and demanding I wake up. I rolled over and pulled the covers over me and let out a huge snore, pretending I was still fast asleep. This only egged him on, though, of course, and before long, he was furiously jumping up and down, screaming, Daddy! Daddy, wake up! I felt him grab hold of the covers and pull them off of me. I kept my head down and continued to feign sleeping, but instead of the laughter I expected, I suddenly heard him dry heaving before I felt the downpour of sickly, pungent vomit wash over my head and seep down, some crawling its way into my ear canal, before my brain was even able to register what had happened. I stood up and tried my best not to add to the pile of vomit now forming on my bed. I quickly grabbed my son and took him to the bathroom. It wasn't until I tried to start cleaning it that I realized my son was in hysterics, of course, none of this is all that odd. He obviously just wasn't fully recovered, and all the jumping around caused him to be sick. Nothing unusual. That is, until I tried to calm him. He screamed and recoiled when I moved towards him. I tried to shush him gently and tell him it would all be okay, but the very sight of me seemed to terrify him. I realized it was probably the sight of me covered in vomit that was upsetting him, and so... I left him at the toilet and tried to clean myself up at the kitchen sink. The screams of my son in the bathroom were hard to ignore, but I managed, with some panic and urgency, to clean myself up. I went back to my son and held him close as he slowly started to calm down and eventually fall asleep. I left him to sleep on the couch for as long as he needed, while I cleaned the bed and put the clothes away for washing. I left him to sleep on the couch for as long as he needed, while I cleaned the bed and put the clothes away for washing. His reaction when I first tried to comfort him stuck with me, though. Why did he freak out so much at vomit? It's not like he hasn't been sick before. Eventually, I managed to clean everything up, and not long after, heard him stir and awake. He was sitting up peacefully on the couch when I went back in, and I was relieved he seemed to be okay now. It was short-lived, however. As soon as he saw me standing in the door, he started whimpering, and before I could even think, 
He doubled over and violently puked all over the floor. Of course, the first thing I did was call the doctors and explain what was happening. I should mention, I did check him for a temperature and any rashes earlier while he slept. He seemed to be fine, but we made an appointment at the doctor for later that day anyway. It was very hard to get him to stop crying. Just the sight of me seemed to stress him out greatly. Which I'm sure you can imagine didn't feel too great for me. I thought maybe I had upset him somehow. Maybe it's just an extremely bad tantrum coupled with the shock of being so violently sick. Eventually he did calm down and was able to sit next to me although he was very obviously trying his best to avoid looking at me. I asked him what was wrong, if his tummy hurt or if daddy did something to scare him. He whimpered, pointed at me and said, Daddy, your head, before he went pale and started crying again. I touched my head, thinking maybe there was still some sick or something that had seemed to be confirmed when I felt a slick, sticky wetness on the top of my head. I couldn't understand how I'd missed that. I went for a shower while he slept, and it had been a few hours since then and the vomit would have surely been dried up at this point. I went to check the mirror. When I saw the horror of my reflection, I winced. Actually, I think I stared at it for over an hour trying to make some sense of it. It just had no logical explanation. It defied the laws of physics, biology, nature. It was like looking at an impossible shape. Although it wasn't what I saw that was impossible. It was the fact I was seeing it which made no sense. I gently touched the pulsating gap wound in my head and felt the spongy but firm decaying brain matter within. I've never felt a sensation as strange, my fingers sliding gently across the folds and curves of my brain. It looked almost as surreal as it felt. It was like a beaten, blood-soaked sponge in my head, squeezing out thick red liquid at every touch. I realized I could feel a breeze inside my skull. There was an empty space at the back where some of my brain had been severed and was now dangling carelessly out the back of my skull. I traced the large crack from the top of my skull down toward my nose, where the two halves of my face gradually met again. My left eye was bulging out, and for a moment, I considered trying to squeeze it back in. I knew it would be a futile gesture at this point, though. The thing that scared me most wasn't my ghastly appearance, though. It was the realization that came afterwards. My infant son would be alone in this house with my corpse, unable to get food or water. We had no other family, and he wasn't expected at nursery for the next week. I knew I only had one chance to save him. I had to tell someone. I tried using my phone, but I could no longer form words with my mouth. My jaw had slowly started to tighten and lock. I used the last of my strength to lift my phone and started typing. My fingers are getting stiffer and stiffer as I type this. Please, someone go to 49 Kigner Sturz. My son. Please, save my son. No matter how many times I slammed the heel of my foot into this bathroom door, it still stared back at me, defiantly unharmed. I tried the hinge pins, I twisted and prized at them until my fingernails split and my fingertips were blotched with blood blisters. I had no reason to suspect anything was amiss when I woke up that day. 
Nothing was even slightly out of the ordinary. I poured myself a bowl of cereal and groggily watched raindrops flit downwards across the kitchen window. I always wake up early. 6 a.m. is not an unusual time for me to start the day. 6 a.m. is not an unusual time for me to start my day. My usually loud flatmates were nursing off hangovers from an alcohol-fueled beach party the night prior. So it was more than likely they would skip morning classes and sleep in until noon, which meant I had the morning calm all to myself. Another benefit of being an early riser would, of course, be first dibs on the shower, though in hindsight and all, looking back I really wish I had chosen to sleep in that morning. It sounds selfish, but perhaps if I had one of my roommates, just might have wound up in this situation instead of me. I was sitting on the floor of the tub, letting the hot water flush over my back, when the pipes in the wall thundered to an immediate stop, with a rumble that chattered my teeth. Then I was left dripping and confused. My first reaction was to think perhaps our water bill hadn't been paid on time. Wouldn't have been the first time either. So, I toweled off and checked the sink to confirm. As I suspected, the handles pivoted uselessly, and not even a dribble came from the tap. The water in the toilet had submerged well below the usual orange bacteria ring the water leveled at normally, but the tank was completely full, a tender mercy that ended up being my only source of water in the end. Then, as you are aware, I tried the door. It refused to budge. The handle refused to unlock or give. I even uselessly tried to unscrew the screws on either side of the handle with every item I could find in the drawers. After all, other methods failed. I crawled down, hands and knees, and angled my eye so it was flush with the gap beneath the door. It was frighteningly black. The most sincere, starless, godless black you could imagine. The strangest part, though, was when I tried to stuff my fingers into said gap, they stopped, just as though I was trying to push my fingers through a wall. It was like a strip of solidified shadow had been wedged beneath the door. My four roommates are very inconsiderately loud, as I mentioned before, so I waited on the floor and watched the hours crawl painfully and sluggishly by, waiting for one of them to wake up. But the relief, the noise, never came. I used to resent how discourteous they were, but I begged for it then on the bathroom floor. After I stopped calling out, it became quickly apparent how any and all noise had been siphoned from the room. It was unusual not to hear any of the usual noise my roommates produced. It was another level of unusual entirely, to hear no ambient noise coming from my surroundings. In a room ebbing with an ever-growing sense of disquietude, my thoughts turned to something I had learned about before. Anechoic chambers. The walls are made of incredulously thick Arrington brick and concrete. The doors are meticulously sealed to prevent upwards of 99% of any exterior noise from breaching the room. To emphasize, this acoustic dampening forces you to start measuring sound in negative decibels. This, in turn, molds the sounds of your body into the ambient noise you're usually used to hearing. You begin to experience your heartbeat, your lungs wetly expand behind your ribs. You can hear your stomach gurgle, your joints pop when you move. It's a maddening experience. Supposedly, no one had ever lasted more than 45 minutes. I guess I shattered that record. The lack of acoustic reflection also takes away your ability to self-balance, 
since your body is reliant on audible cues your feet make when stepping. This meant I'd often stick to moving on my hands and knees to avoid collapsing and hurting myself. I have four bulb lights above the mirror on top of my sink. They would periodically crackle to light, for minutes, sometimes hours at a time. There were no shadows in the bathroom, so once they flicker off, I'd be left in the most sincere darkness imaginable. It's also the only time I'd be granted relief from the crap show orchestral my body produced in there. I could, strangely enough, hear the electrical currents running up with the contacts at the base of the bulbs and into the filaments. It was always a welcome distraction. My phone battery had been nearly full when I entered the bathroom that morning, but over the course of my time in that room, no matter how much I moderated my own use of it, the battery dwindled at 1% for the last few days. My only source of connection to the outside world hung on by a thread, and yes, I tried lifting my smartphone to every single ceiling corner, every single angle I could imagine, those first few days. But my phone never left offline mode, and every time I'd try to connect, I'd get the same message. Cellular update failed. I was limited in what I could do without data or a Wi-Fi connection. I didn't have any games either, so I turned it into a makeshift watch and journal, added passages to my notes daily. Then I'd check the time and date, then I'd force myself to shut it off. I made a routine out of it. It was the only sense of normalcy I maintained in there. Over the course of the next few weeks in there, my breath had turned a pungent and sickly flavor of sweetly sour, like peaches rotting in the sun. I later learned that meant my body had left ketosis and started to eat away at the proteins in my muscle tissue for fuel. I scrounged under the cabinets for anything to stop my mounting stomach pains. I chewed on and swallowed cotton balls. I would lay in the tub and eat away at rolls of toilet paper. The only thing I ever scrounged up of any real nutritional value was a glue trap on the floor of the empty bathroom closet. It held only a curled millipede and a few wispy spider carcasses. To me, these morsels tasted heavenly. I laid my bathroom rugs and towels into the tub to allow myself some sort of comfort. I'd sit there in the dark spells with the shower curtain drawn meaninglessly. The only tool I had to stave off the hallucinations was my thoughts. I concluded that my bathroom and I were somehow stitched instantaneously into an underlying reality that day. It doesn't make much sense, I know, but it's the only explanation I can drum up for being torn so suddenly into what appears to be an intangible shadow place, protected only by the collapsing walls of my own previous reality and my dwindling sanity. After precisely four weeks and two days of monotonous, insanity-laced boredom, something knocked on the other side of the door. I first assumed it was another of the hallucinations that came and went like the ocean tide on a daily basis, and waited, curled fetal in my tub for it to stop, but the knocking only persevered. The more I attempted to ignore the tapping at my door, the more intensely that knocking became. It was accompanied by a faint fluttering noise as if you could hear the damp snowflakes drifting in careless persuasion around you in a snowstorm. Or perhaps it was more comparable to the flap of a moth's wings, only magnified in the thousands with the noise turned up to a perceivable percussion. The knocking raised to a crescendo, then escalated to fists pounding on the other side. I felt the door rattle and shiver through the porcelain tub, 
The door I had so desperately wanted to break down before was splintering and fracturing beneath some unknown and likely incomprehensible force. Ironically, I now wanted nothing more than for that door to remain upright and firmly in place. Then I heard one final, deafening shock, followed by shards of wood clanking across the naked tile of the bathroom. Then I heard the inside lock I could not undo. The lock I had tried so desperately to release, click unlocked with mocking ease. The knob turned. I heard the door swing open and tap the wall with a shudder of finality. The lights began to flicker and hum. I felt something linger in the doorway. And so, that's when I looked up from the porcelain lip of the bathtub. Behind it was the black of space, uninterrupted by any forms or any patterns. It stood there watching me. It was a writhing mass of white static, a crude human imitation. Its limbs were wrong. They were exaggerated and long, its fingers crude, its form still, and yet unstill. I could see the writhing mass of it swimming like a blizzard inside the limitations of its outline. Its eyes were no more than two narrow slits that projected out the shadow world behind it, in unstable, inky interruptions. Its mouth was the same, small and lipless. It stared with a toothless grin for some time. I couldn't take my eyes away from it. It grew my attention almost unconsciously. It swallowed my thoughts. It stole away any resistance I could muster effortlessly. As it stepped into the room, the bulbs began to heat up. The filaments dilated up to blinding pulses as chaotic as the thing itself. Its form didn't seem to set properly in the bathroom. Its writhing, television static body seemed almost comically layered over the tile and backdrop. The grimacing slots of void of its face remained. Its eyes furrowed, almost in anger as it drifted closer. I could no longer hear my heart flutter over the deafening hum this creature emitted, but I could still feel it pumping itself into tachycardia. My breath was stifling, my head was aching and spacey. I began to see dots in my periphery. The maelstrom of noise was enough. I thought it would burst my eardrums. I lifted my arms defensively. It kneeled next to the tub. It leaned in close and wrapped its buzzing, sickle fingers around my wrist. Its fingertips barbed into my flesh, and electricity burned down my arm. It leaned that wry mouth in close and suckled the flesh of my wrist. After a moment of blinding horror, it pulled its head away, leaving behind a swirling, nebulous circle. It leaned in ever closer and spoke to me. Its voice was absolute, a message that came from nowhere, but also everywhere. A message drooled tiredly from its mouth. Its vacant eyes never faltered from my own. As it spoke, the light bulbs above the sink began to overheat and explode. They popped one by one, like the shattering nerves in my wrist. Intruder, it hissed. The room was dark again, except for the humming thing that was peering past the layers of my soul. It spoke again, its voice not one, but many, a locust swarm of sounds twisted into sentences. There are some sights that your simple god never intended for human eyes to see. This appears to be an oversight by him, so I will release you. But, before I do, 
I must tell you some things. Leave stains on your flesh, others your soul. This will leave a stain on your mind most of all, a stain you will never be able to wash away, no matter how hard you scrub. This will haunt your feeble mind until your body fails you. Perhaps it was the overstimulation, the dangerous magnitudes my heartbeat had exceeded, but I lost consciousness then. When I woke up, it was in a bright and warm hospital room. The world seeped in through the slitted windows beyond. I felt the light kiss my skin. I was wrapped in the warm arms of a scratchy hospital blanket. Officially, no one can explain what happened to me. To the outside world, I was locked in my bathroom for no more than six hours when I was found. But I was dangerously emaciated, anemic, and my body had been depleted of nearly all its vital electrolytes. I was beginning to think it was all a horrible fever dream. That is, until my eyes drifted down to my wrist and I saw the inky black circle sitting beneath the skin. And I remembered what the thing had told me. And that's when I screamed. Once had a fella tried to tell me that, in all the history of the whole world, no one had ever truly deserved to die. Now I heard him out, and I will say that, well, his argument was better than most. He said when you put someone away forever, you're letting time decide that they're not right for this world. Because no matter how evil they may seem, no matter what they did, you can't know if they just needed more time to reflect and to learn and to find God, what have you. He said that when you lock someone up for three or four hundred years, which I've seen, you're saying that if they live that long, they'd get another shot. They just don't live that long, is all. But when you sentence a fella to death, that's making a bold claim. That's saying, no matter how long they have, hell, even if they live till the bars rust off, they were never going to change. And that wasn't right to say about nobody. Now that's a damn fine argument, and I would have agreed with him, I think, if I hadn't gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with the forever killer. You may not know his name, on the count of he had so many of them, but you'll know the cases, even if you didn't know to string them together. About thirty years back, I was new on the force, and there was a real doozy of one, two young girls, high school age, hung up on meat hooks down south. Remember that? It was a dirty job, and they'd been up there for months. But it seemed the fella wasn't too careful, because he left just about every identifiable piece of DNA you could think of back there. So, we found him, and you'd think that would be the end of it. But it wasn't. Maybe this next part'll jog your memory guy had banged up his head a couple months back on a job site, about uh, two weeks after he'd hooked them girls up. Had no memory of it. Of anything, mind you. In fact, he'd just gotten out of some trauma unit for the injury. Turns out he had complete, and this is rare, rarer than it is in the movies, he had complete retrograde amnesia. If I'm copying that right. He was fine for the most part. Turns out he'd just hit his head exactly in the one spot that would do it. Now you're going to call a sham, and we did, but I'll tell you, I'm a man of science myself, even when I don't understand it, and these gizmos we got now, can't doubt them. We ran all kinds of tests on him, took all kinds of pictures of his brain, checked his pupils when we showed him the pictures, every new piece of lie-proof machinery we had at the time we threw at him, and there you had it, he was telling the truth. Oh, it was a case all right, and it blew up, not everywhere, but most places. And in the end, 
after he'd broken down in the courtroom apologizing, saying he couldn't believe that man he was had ever done such a thing, they had to let him go. Kayla was dead, the judge ruled, killed by fiberglass, and this... This fella here was just taking his body for a spin. Oh, the look on those girls' mothers' faces, I tell you. I ain't ever seen anything like it since. Whatever our thoughts on the matter, though, it's one of those things so bizarre you had to accept it. Strange things happen all the time. Not twice, though. Not the same strange thing. Not to the same fella. That's when it heated up. Because about two years later, there was that boy they found in the warehouse. The one who'd been chopped to hell. And I won't go any further than that. And as it turns out, you can change your brain, but not your blood. And once again, he left us plenty of evidence. And we found him. Again. And what do you know? He knew nothing of it. Again. This time it was a car accident a few weeks prior. Totally wiped it all. Like when a computer falls in the tub. Same damn part of the brain exactly. He's a new man now, all that. Same tests show the same thing. Had different people run them. Didn't matter. He'd left the hospital days prior and had just been trying to start a new life, he reckoned. Knew nothing about some little boy and certainly nothing about who he'd been before. Oh, that gave him a right scare. So yeah, he went to court. And yeah, you guessed it. It was a fast trial. They had already set the standard, hadn't they? On the same fella. Because if they let the first guy off on the count of his amnesia, then they had to let the second guy off too, even when the first amnesia guy did it, didn't they? Wasn't the whole point that they weren't the same person? Granted, this obviously opened up a whole can of worms on evil blood and the like, and beneath it all, that's still there to unpack. The idea that this fella, no matter how many times he bumped his head and started off and started working as a plumber or an executive or a financial risk advisor or whatever the hell those people do, maybe he was just always going to be a killer. That was a fair question. And there seemed to be something to it, because you wouldn't you know. It happened not once, but two more times in the next ten years. I was a rookie the first time I booked him, and I was taking the sergeant's test the next time we had any real breakthroughs on it. Oh, and it was a game changer. Now, obviously, after time number two, he had a little more restrictions on him. And granted, he fought them every time, and always won on the count of we was harassing him when he didn't know why. But my squad, we checked in every once in a while, best we could, given the distance we needed to keep. And eventually, after murder and head knock number five, we found it. Found his, I don't know what you'd call it, his, uh, his manifesto? I'll tell you. I didn't understand a lot of it. But what I did understand was some of the most demented stuff I had ever read. It was like all the highbrow Ivy League misery in the world had crammed itself into 200 pages in press print. It gave details on all of it, even the first crime, which we think now was two retrograde amnesias before them girls. He'd been some student brain surgeon, we think. Go figure. And he had chapters and chapters on philosophy and change and karma and evil and chaos, and apex predators, and God, and a section on the Egyptian pharaohs, and I think a few pages on the invention of the battery. And, if you can get through it yourself, you've damn sure got a better attention span than me. But the last section, the last 20 pages or so, it was instructions. Instructions on how to kill, how to bump his head, and, of course, 
how to print the book and hide it somewhere, where he was sure the next fellow would find it. There you have it. Son of a bitch was brainwashing himself. Hell, from what we could decipher of that manual of his, he'd even wanted us to catch him each time. I mean, we just hadn't always done our jobs right. But the instructions even said to leave the mess. We were trapped in his cycle. Kill, hide the book, bump the head, wake up a new man, for real. Stumble upon the book, kill, rinse, repeat. And we knew it wasn't just one book. He was printing a couple and hiding them all over. That was the thing. He knew himself. Even his next self. Must have known what his favorite foods would be or whatever. Knew where to hide it. Knew exactly how to write it, to make the first page dig its hooks in. And even with all that, you'd think we could lock him up. But you know what? Don't work that way. A man is innocent until he's not. And you know what? I agree with that. I do. So even though we knew he'd hidden these books everywhere and was just lying in wait, we let him off the leash like we always had. Same song and dance. Let him run off and be the new man with the new life, all according to the old man's plan. He had us on the ropes, I'll admit, but this deputy chief of police here don't let that kind of business slide. That's not me. So I got some trustworthy boys from the old squad together, and we waited and we watched. Oh, and we watched a long time. And we knew we weren't going to ever know him better than he knew himself. But we learned about the next best thing. We learned about the new him. The most recent one. Saw him hit the same coffee shop every morning. Lovely place. Nice big windows. And one night, we went into the evidence locker and found one of his books of bedtime stories. And we put it there at his favorite table. And sure enough, he found it. That very next morning. We waited and watched, no foul play, saw him open the book, saw him flip a few pages, and right when he slipped it into his bag, my number one guy popped him from two blocks away. Never even got to finish his latte. Now the trigger man is doing three or four hundred in some cell in the big city, but he's a right hero to us. We make sure he's taken care of, and I know that somewhere in that book, written backwards or in the margins or in some made-up language, there's a bit about how it was all his master plan to have an innocent man die and us becoming one of him and the ultimate goal being to make us all killers and show that there ain't no difference and all that. And that's fine by me. Nobody there to read it now. Can't let evil win. Not ever. Not even when it plays by the rules. And that's what I told that fella that argued with me that one night. I told him that it takes a lot for me to put you down forever. But when I do... Forever ain't long enough. When my boyfriend first moved into our apartment, everything seemed okay. I moved in after he had been there a month or two, and we started our life together in our little home. We made dinner together, played video games together, and slept curled up each night. But our favorite thing to do together? Watch supernatural documentaries and movies. Our main addiction was ghost adventures. We'd watch it for hours on end and he would often end up falling asleep in the middle of an episode. I would turn the TV off at this point and try to get some rest. After about a month of this being our routine, we started noticing strange things happening in the apartment. My boyfriend would wake up in the middle of the night to tell me I was talking in my sleep. Not just normal, mumbling sleep talking, but ominous sentences that scared him enough to turn the lights on. One of the scarier things I remember him telling me I said was, it's outside. I can hear it. 
It's tapping on the window. Don't let it in. He also said I frequently spoke in what he described as sounding like a demonic language. This took place for a long time, and while it freaked us both out, we never experienced anything that made us think there was any truth to what I was saying. Until one night, a few months later. My boyfriend worked second shift at a warehouse, and I went to school full-time during the day, so we didn't get to see much of each other until the weekend. Most nights I would try to stay up until 12.30am when he got home, just to spend a few minutes with him. But sometimes, I just couldn't keep my eyes open. When I would fall asleep, my boyfriend would come home and kiss me on the forehead, as a way of saying, I'm home now. I loved this gesture. I had taken several exams one day in November and was mentally drained. I strained to stay awake, but I remember looking at the red 11 o'clock on my alarm clock while my eyes fell shut. I was in what I call a half-sleep, where you're aware that you're sleeping, but you can hear what's going on around you. I was like this for quite some time, until I heard the little click of our door unlocking. Then I heard the door open and shut, followed by footsteps through our living room and into the bedroom. I felt a light kiss on my forehead, and opened my eyes to welcome my boyfriend home. The usual sequence of events. But when I opened my eyes, I was greeted with an empty room. I thought maybe my boyfriend had kissed me and then gone to the bathroom. But those bright red numbers only read 1139. I don't know what was in my room that night, and I have trouble believing it was only a dream. Now when I get forehead kisses at night, I don't open my eyes. <laughs>